My name is uh, Brett Stevens, and um, uh, I'm uh, an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, as some of you may know. Um, I am also uh, the editor um, of, of a limited edition uh, journal um, published by the Maimonides Fund, which is called Sapir. And here is uh, the hard copy, but you can find it also online quite easily at sapirjournal.org. Uh, uh, um, our, our first issue um, in which uh, Pamela's uh, sensational, uh, and I mean sensational only as the highest form of praise, uh, sensational essay uh, appeared, critical race theory and the quote unquote hyper white uh, Jew um, is forms part of an issue on the subject of social justice, which uh, um, uh, I believed along with my team was a uh, critical uh, field that required some examination. Subsequent issues, our next issue will be about power. Third issue is going to be about philanthropy, education and Jewish continuity. And the fourth issue uh, to come out sometime next year will be uh, is, uh, is TBD. But I just wanna briefly introduce um, uh, our, our speakers today. Um, uh, John Haidt, well-known uh, professor uh, at NYU and co-author uh, with Greg Lukanoff of the best-selling book, The Coddling of, uh, the, uh, of the American Mind, which um, Pamela also did um, a, lot of, uh, um, a lot of work on. Um, it's height, not hate. Am I, am I correct? And my mm -hmm, mind that's right. is that I seem to remember you're quite tall. Um, but I'm not full of hatred. That's right. And you're, you don't have a hateful, uh, a hateful bone in your body. John is going to be interviewing um, my, my friend and colleague in this venture, uh, Pamela uh, Pereski. Pamela is a, um, a PhD uh, psychologist from the University of, um, of Chicago. Um, who uh, is uh, most recently was a lecturer at uh, the University of Chicago teaching a course, if I remember correctly, it was called The Habits of the Free Mind. Is that right, Pamela? That's right. Uh, which had, uh, how many students were in your class? Remind 145. me. 145. 145 students, all done on Zoom, which is really, uh, uh, really quite, uh, quite amazing. Um, Pamela also, more importantly for our purposes, wrote this, this essay, as I said, Critical Race Theory and the Hyper-White Jew. It went viral um, almost instantaneously at the moment it was, uh, it was published. Um, I think it is something that every college student in America ought to read, every parent of a college student in America ought to read, every rabbi uh, in the United States uh, ought to read. And every Jew who is concerned, as I think so many of us are, that at the intersection of Jewish identity and the new social justice paradigm, there are problems. So with that, by way uh, of a slightly shambolic in, uh, uh, introduction, um, I'm gonna turn it over to you, John, and I'm, I'm gonna turn off my screen and just reappear in the last minute of this uh, conversation. So, so John, take it away. Uh, very good. Okay, well, thank you so much, Brett. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, to be uh, taking part in this event sponsored by Sapir. Um, I just, the, that first edition on social justice, so many perspectives on social justice, I think is really important, really well-timed. I'm very excited for the journal. 
Um, and I'm also excited to be here talking with, with Pamela. As Brett mentioned, Pamela was the lead researcher when Greg and I were writing The Coddling of the American Mind. Pamela was employed by FIRE and uh, Greg um, asked her to be our main researcher. And I totally coincidentally had known Pamela from when I was a postdoc at the University of Chicago and she was a graduate student in the Committee on Human Development. So we go back a long way. Uh, and as we were writing The Coddling of the American Mind, we learned so much about what is going on in our country and in other countries too. Um, the dynamics, the, the change of social relationships as a result of social media, the rising depression of Gen Z, which makes them very receptive to sort of paranoid, fearful theories that tell them that everything is threatening, everything is against them. Um, and when we were writing it, uh, actually, let's see what the Pittsburgh shootings, the, the, that, the year of uh, uh, synagogue shootings, that was after we'd finished the book. We finished the writing in early 2018. And, um, um, and so, so now to see these things coming together, to see the problems we were tracing out in the coddling the American mind and a rise in anti-Semitic um, uh, attacks, uh, both physical and these sort of intellectual attacks or, or that, that Pamela has been writing about. Um, so it's a very important topic. Pamela has just written such a clear, uh, clear essay on it. Uh, and I should commend Brett too. Brett has been writing about this for a long time. Um, I now believe that uh, professors on average are cowards and journalists on average are courageous. Uh, uh, given that you know we professors are all afraid of being called a name, we won't say something if we think we'll get called a name. But man, Brett gets called a lot of names. So, um, uh, so I, I'm just thrilled to be part of this with with brave and clear writers. Um, so Pamela, um, so we'll be talking about uh, a fairly threatening situation. So what I'd like to do is I, I like to start off. I, I now start off all my talks with a, a brief discussion of defend mode versus explore mode. That is our minds are specialized so that uh, the front left cortex has all these circuits for approach and positive emotions and the front right has all these circuits for fear and withdrawal. And part of what we've seen with Gen Z is that, you know, at college campus, you should be like a kid in a candy shop full of opportunities, but these students were coming in seeing everything as threatening. And I wanna make sure that we don't start off our talk that way because the whole point of defend mode is to close the gates, defend yourself, you can't learn anything. And the whole point of explore mode is actually what's out there, let's learn, let's figure this out. And uh, since much of what we'll be talking about is the Jewish history of, 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 of engaged debate and openness to, to debate and dialogue. So I wanna start us off on a positive note and then perhaps we'll question that. Um, we're gonna be talking about the, the rise of, of anti-Semitism, which as Barry Weiss helped us see is from multiple sources nowadays, the, the newer one, the newer intense one is the sort of the academic left, which is what Pamela has been writing about. But I just wanna put this against the background of is America an anti-Semitic country? Um, the day after, literally the day after the Pittsburgh shooting, the Rodef Shalom shooting, I had a mandatory diversity training class at NYU. And it was the usual CRT intersectionality stuff. And the, the person leading the talk was like, he was practically, he was so excited by the shooting because he started off by saying, yesterday, America showed its true colors. Like he was excited that a white supremacist, a bona fide white supremacist, 
You know, the word white supremacist used all over the place. This was an actual white supremacist um, uh, had committed a mass atrocity. And he was saying, this is, Amer this is what America truly is. And I thought, wait a second. No, this is not what America is. And so if it's okay, I don't know. I just want to share my screen to show, this is now the slide I show every Jewish audience I talk to. Let me see if I can, if I am set up to share my screen. I just want to show you one image. Um, so this is, uh, my, these are my parents. And my parents raised me to believe uh, that it's not Israel that's the promised land for the Jews. It's America. Uh, because and they are the quintessential, you know, first generation, you know, born here story, parents all born in Poland and, and, and Russia and Belarus. America is the promised land for the Jews. That's what I was always raised to believe. And so after this guy said, oh, America, you know, hates Jews. Um, I looked it up and guess what? Uh, Pew has survey data on how Americans feel about different um, ethnic groups. And they, they surveyed them in 2014. And then they surveyed them in January, 2017, around the time that Trump was inaugurated. And who is the most liked group in America? It's the Jews. So America is, no, obviously, look, it's not statistically significant compared to Catholics and mainline Protestants. Uh, but the point is that it, it, by no stretch of the imagination could you say that America on average is an anti-Semitic country. So let's just start with that positive frame around this so we don't get alarmed and feel like, oh my God, we all need to leave America. No, we don't leave, need to leave America. Um, at least that's my assertion, open to question, open to challenge. Well, I'm um, gonna challenge so, that a little bit. <laughs> okay, so basically that's it. I just wanted to start off that way. So, and then, so now I'm gonna turn over to you, Pamela. And first, just let's just zoom in here on what do you see as the nature of anti-Semitism in America? We'll be focusing on the CRT branch, but how do you place this? And then we'll zoom in on that. Yeah, so the first thing I wanna say is, um, you know, when we were working on your book, your and Greg's book, um, we didn't really think about anti-Semitism. We no, weren't- Not at all. We weren't concerned about that. That was 2017. And so those, those numbers that you showed, uh, 2017, um, in 2018, we were working on the book and that was not really a big concern at the time. I think if we were to survey people now, I think the numbers would look different. Um, well, that's, well, wait, now, okay. So that's, that's the question of the average versus the anecdote. There's no question that there have been events. And, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that there were, you know, four to six, however many shootings there are, there were, that's not, not going to have any, that doesn't tell us anything about the average. No, uh, so and I don't no think, no question don't that the dynamics are changing. I don't think that's where the dynamics change from. Okay. Um, so I think um, the nature of anti-Semitism in the U.S. is becoming more like the nature of anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, okay, tell me, what, what do you mean by that? Tell me, let's, let's try to be precise. Yeah, so there has been a, um, a, a, an, a, an anti-Semitism coming from um, Arab Im immigrants mm -hmm. in Europe for quite a long time. And we had not really seen so much of that here. But now with this um, sort of marriage of the Palestinian um, mm -hmm. call for BDS and anti-Israel ideology and framing Israel as, or not even Israel, but Zionists, which is code for Jews in many cases, um, framing Zionists as white colonialist settlers. Yeah. Um, that then changes how people see Jews, what people think Jews are. Um, and 
I think that that's, you know, and that is, you know, largely what I was writing about in this, in this essay, where that comes from is this critical uh, theory kind of perspective that indicates it, it, it's a lens through which you only see oppressed and oppressor and um, nuance is completely erased. Um, and so you have to categorize Jews somehow and Jews are um, uh, more successful, not less. They're more educated, not less. They don't fit the criteria for being a, an oppressed, marginalized minority group that, that the critical race theory and other critical, critical ethnic studies, that lens does not allow for the nuance that, uh, that, that would allow us to be um, seen as the very complex kind of um, uh, minority group that we are. I think that there are some uh, views of intersectionality that could be appropriately applied, but the more important thing is that's all within that paradigm that they could be appropriately um, applied. I don't, I don't want to think in that paradigm. I want to step outside of that paradigm and say that we have a different way of thinking about ourselves, about others, and about the world, and about our country, and about right. what needs to happen. So that's the, uh, you know, sort of the long and short of right. the nature. Okay. Of so for, so for uh, for our audience, some of whom uh, may know what CRT is or critical race theory, uh, some of whom may only know a caricature of it uh, from what they've read on Twitter, uh, and many of whom will know nothing about it. Uh, I think you you give a very good, very short description of it in in your essay. Uh, and you and you do a good job of saying here's what actually is right about it about intersection well, intersectionality I should say and here's how it's sort of deformed on campus so just help the audience by just giving those two definitions like what about what's right about it what's the origin of it yeah. yeah so and and we you know we uh, I think did a good job um, you and Greg did a good job of of outlining this in your book too that the original way of uh, using intersectionality was a way of, of highlighting where um, in law, in discrimination law, um, people could fall through the, the cracks and not be protected by discrimination law because their intersectional identities weren't covered. So in the case that most clearly <laughs> represents that, it's um, some women who applied for jobs at GM, Black women, um, and they were denied jobs and they sued GM on a discrimination uh, level. And um, the, they lost their suit because GM employed lots of women and GM employed lots of black people. And there was not a category for black women that GM didn't employ black women. So they lost that case and it was important for law to recognize that there are these intersectional identities that must be protected in these kinds of situations. Um, then how it has become used on campus and in diversity trainings and um, you know, in K-12 schools is it's, it resembles that not at all. Um, it, it is sort of, you know, people uh, mock it as the, the oppression Olympics. Um, people got intersectionality scores you know, there, there are ways of, 
you know, how, which parts of your identity are oppressed and which parts of your identity are oppressor. And I mean, all of this is just a very, very different and not helpful way of looking at it as opposed to the way that it's not, you know, necessary to look at in discrimination law. Yeah, so I think um, uh, maybe a, a Jewish way of looking at this uh, is with nuance mm -hmm. and with a sort of a non-moralization that is, uh, you know, as you said, there's uh, so there, there's 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 usually something right in any organized movement. They're usually there's something that they're right about. Let's keep that in mind. Um, and they're doing it not because they're bad people, but because they're motivated to fight what they see as evil. Then the puzzle is, how did it happen that so many college students and now young people, uh, you know, this is mostly people in the twenties and, and into their thirties. It's not so much Gen X and, and, and baby boomers doing this. Um, how did so many smart young people and even smart young Jews get lured into this, this way of thinking that sees everybody and everything in these binary terms, oppressor victim, uh, that makes them paranoid and that puts them in defend mode all the time. Um, it used to be really fun to be a professor, but now it just feels like, you know, it's just everything's so threatening or there's, or, now I'm doing it. Um, it just feels as though it's not like the kid in a candy store anymore. It feels like, you know, walking on eggshells. People will get, get you in trouble if you say anything wrong. Um, so, uh, okay, so that's, that's intersectionality. Now, just now briefly, you know, what is CRT and how did Jews, because that's the point of your paper, say how is, where were Jews and how did Jews suddenly get pulled into this? Yeah, so, um, uh, so critical race theory, you know, it, it, it came after critical ethnic studies, which came out of um, uh, San Francisco. And um, I wrote a couple of pieces with some of my colleagues at the Network Contagion Research Institute for the Jewish Journal when the ethnic studies curriculum was being debated in California um, about why that curriculum was anti-Semitic. And um, looking at that, the, the lens of uh, that curriculum, the, the lens that that curriculum uses, which is a critical race theory lens, you, you get to see sort of what happens when you use this. So the theory is um, uh, about um, uh, seeing things in terms of power dynamics and oppressor and oppressed. And it's actually a kind of fascinating way to look at literature. Um, for example, you can read any book um, through a critical race theory lens, and then you can read it through a critical gender theory lens, you can read it through a critical feminist theory lens, and you'll see different things. It's like wearing a lens of a different color, and then it blanks out that color and it highlights other things. And, and so it's, I think it's useful in um, imagining how things might look if you look at it different ways. But um, what we're seeing is when that lens is applied, it's not generally applied as one way among many to, to think about right. things. And so what, and, and then there are, there are laws now being proposed in different states banning critical race theory from being taught. I think that's a mistake. I think that um, the, the problem is not that critical race theory is being taught. The, the problem is critical race theory is not being taught critical race theory is being used as a substitute for mm -hmm. fact. And so that is what the problem yeah. is there. Critical race theory ought to be taught. And then people can see the lens. When you can see the lens, then you can choose to use it or not. Yeah, there are, that's right. It, it, is, it does seem crazy, especially for those of us who, 
who either worked at FIRE or are good friends with Greg Lukianoff, um, you know, to think that we're banning theories from being taught, it's bizarre. But there is some, I'm not defending it, except to say there is something unique about, about critical race theory, which is, I'm beginning to formulate a possible essay about how it's a really cuckoo idea. And by cuckoo, I don't mean crazy. I mean, like the cuckoo bird, you know, the cuckoo bird lays her eggs in a nest and when it hatches, it pushes all the other eggs out. And that's the thing that we began to see on campus before we had a name for it mm -hmm. is, you know, it's totally fine for someone to say everything's about power. That's fine. That's a perspective that we, I welcome that in class. Mm -hmm. um, but once you reach a sort of a, well, things really changed around 2015 so that if someone says, well, actually, no, it's not about power, racist. You know, it's like, whoa, okay, I won't say anything ever again. Right. Um, and it's so sad to hear this. You know, students, uh, you know, one student said, uh, said to a friend of mine, uh, my motto is silence is safer. And mm -hmm. I hear this from high school kids. I hear this in college kids. So there, are, it, so it's not the ideas themselves. Of course, the ideas should, people should be exposed to the ideas. Um, but for some reason, administrators at high school and college are allowing ideas to be not to not talk but ideas to be imposed ideas that say if you disagree with this we are going to either re-educate you or expel you but we'll shame you no matter what um so that is the difficulty what uh what do you hear so first of all tell me how what are young jews doing about this i mean jews have always been very progressive well, not always i mean they i think they are the most democratic voting constituency and they tend to be intellectual and into social causes and social justice so what's happening with with young jews on campus these days yeah so that's a really good question i've actually talked with a number of young jews which is where i got the information to create that composite imaginary scenario mm. um blake flayton and who wrote a, an essay in the new york times and Isaac de Castro have uh, put together a new Zionist Congress for for Jews, you know, of all ages, but it's really to appeal to to college students. Um, and I hear from uh, and 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 Fega, the the girl in the uh, story, um, is a real person, and that really happened to her. Mm. Uh, that in her her um, uh, diversity and oppression class, or I think that is what it was called. Um, uh, she was presented with information about uh, domestic abuse in, in uh, Orthodox Jewish homes. And this was in a social work class. And sh they had not talked about domestic abuse in a diversity and oppression class in any other minor minority group. And they didn't talk about anti-Semitism at all. And, um, and that really, that struck me. And she was given that reading of um, how it was called, I think, how Jews became white. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is also what happens in the uh, ethnic studies curriculum. And it shows you what the thinking is, that, that Jews were es essentially invited to become white. The narrative is that, the narrative is not that Jews having been excluded, even in the US, created their own institutions and their own schools and their own businesses and their own clubs, and then succeeded at that and other people wanted in. That's not the narrative of critical race theory or critical ethnic studies. The narrative is that Jews were invited to become white after the Holocaust because people felt bad, I guess. And, um, and by becoming white, they became successful. 
So that's that's that narrative, and therefore that's yeah. sort of like the pinnacle of evil is in a in a paradigm where whiteness is the evil. The pinnacle of evil is a group that wasn't originally white and chose to be white. Yeah. That's like well, I think we can yeah I think we can put this in even more religious terms. Um, you know, I have a whole list on my on my computer. I'm up to 30 articles now that have laid out the similarities between wokeness or CRT and religion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it is it is a, 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 a view of the world that, that just sort of taps right into our religious circuit. So I think it's mm -hmm. not a coincidence that it tends to it tends to especially hit people who are not religious. It's sort of we, you know, people on the left are much less religious and they leaves kind of a hole in their head or their heart. And, CRT and you know Marxism and they're you know, obviously fascism and movements on the right just plug right in. Um, <clears throat> but the uh, it, it clearly is or it's you know, John McWhorter has been brilliant on this. He was calling mm -hmm. it he called it back in 2017 exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, but if you know if whiteness is the devil, I mean like literally the devil, and white people are devils. So look, if Jews succeeded, Jews are in league with the devil. So you know in their theology or what, what there's some Christian word here I don't forget but uh, yeah in their theology yeah we are the you know, Jews are in league with the devil um, and that's so where that's where hyper white comes from right like oh, yeah what, more than white, hyper it's hyper white like the whitest of the white the worst of the white is uh, we, we, we out whited the whites we out whited the whites and and the idea is that if if white people were just less like Jews, then they would be less bad. Mm. So all the all of the the sort of conspiracy theory thinking about right. critical race theory is all of the the you know tropes about Jews applied to white people. Yeah, well that's right because yeah whiteness is this almost invisible vapor that permeates everything and you know like like mold or mildew you can never get it out of the of the drywall. No. Um, and it's so, about unmerited privilege and power. Right, and that, that is right. the fundamental basis of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is that, that Jews somehow appropriated unmerited privilege and power. That's the same on the right and the left, right? On, mm -hmm. in, the, in the white supremacist anti-Semitic idea, uh, the Jews appropriated white privilege, the actual privilege of being white. And oh, right, right. In, and Jews will not replace us. That was that right. replacement theory. Right. Yeah, that's right. So Jews, the right. idea that oh. Jews are the interloper, the, the, mm -hmm. the imposter, the ones that will come in and, and, and will uh, take over our land and replace us in our own land with them and the people that they bring in, immigrants, right? Right, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what the Pittsburgh shooter was specifically referring to on his Gab post was- The immigrants. Hyatt, Hyatt. Yeah, that's right. The Jews are liberals who bring in black people and therefore their Jews are trying to replace us with black people, uh, which is a sort of also in the Turner Diaries. I, I read that long ago. Right. And with um, immigrants from, you know, other places from, from South America and Mexico, you know, like Jews are, mm -hmm. are Jews were immigrants, right? And so we tend yeah. to be, in favor of immigration, we tend to think in terms of, hey, it worked for us and mm -hmm. we are contributing members of society. We can help other people do the yeah, same. And so that's yeah. like the right wing way of thinking of it. But it's all the same with just a tiny bit of tweaking to the language yeah. coming from the other side. Jews are now the interloper, 
the, uh, the, the pretend person who doesn't really belong to the land who mm -hmm. is trying to replace people in Israel. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, that's the same. And then yeah. in between, there's the idea of, um, of pretending to be the minority when you're really white. You know, and mm. so there's so much complexity because we don't fall into the neat categories. We're sort That's of, right. we're the, yeah. the test of the paradigm that makes the paradigm fail. So when you're, when you're really um, committed to a paradigm, this paradigm has to be the truth. If there is a group that makes that paradigm fail, you have to get rid of that group. <laughs> that group mm. must go. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. If, if we if we confuse categories, oh, it was Mary Douglas. That's right. The anthropologist Mary Douglas talks about purity and pollution. Yes. And what is impure is what doesn't fit into a category, like a bat or a snake. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, maybe. Well, we'll see. We'll see whether the anti-Semitism brings in. Also, by the way, where our our dietary uh, laws come from, yes, right? That, that's right. That's right. It's not. Yeah. It's about disgust and uh, yeah. So um, and they're, okay. And they're so, category failures, right? They're they're the things that don't fit the category. Right. Like the fish, right. I, fish are okay. Birds that fly, but birds that don't fly, no. You know, like eels that look like snakes and aren't yeah. fish that are in water, no. You know, like the things yeah, that they the really made a mistake with lobster. That was so. That was such a tragic mistake. Too bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so we want to leave about 20, 25 minutes for, for questions from the audience, but let's just take our last few minutes here to talk about either what to do or uh, you have this beautiful line near at the end, uh, you write, of all people, Jews have the historical standing and moral imperative to denounce the ascription of moral virtue or blame as a function of race. So uh, you pick either talk about like, what can we do to, you know, combat this or mm -hmm in what way do Jewish ideas or Jewish thinking or Jewish literature or Jewish wisdom help, help Jews or, or help, um, help institutions like universities, whatever you want? Well, I can combine that a little bit. And, and okay. first, I, wanna, I wanna go back to the thing you said about the cuckoo bird. Now, isn't the cuckoo bird the one that puts their egg in a different bird's nest? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, so yeah, that's right. that's, that is another really good analogy because um, this is like pretending, this theory is pretending to be civil rights. It's pretending to mm. be, it's pretending Ooh, to unite us, you know, yes. it's pretending yes. to be a different kind of bird. And, and it pushes all those things out when, when it emerges from its egg, right? Um, so That's it's right. a really, really beautiful analogy. Um, That's right. And so that's part, excellent. The, yeah, the idea that it has anything to do with justice. Well, I'm sorry, it has right. something to do, but it's it's not justice that it, as it, most people would think of it. Not yeah. the way that we think about it. And yeah. um, and in fact, it's an inversion, right? The the idea that in order to combat or in order to um, rectify uh, past discrimination, we have to discriminate in the present. That's literally yeah. racist. And, and that is the, the prescription. And, um, and so there are so many things that are just inversions of what we would in a logical sense say would be anti-racist. They're inversions of them that are actually racist. So, so that's- Okay, that's but, but be, be constructive. Right. What, so, what can, yeah. So, what, so using that analogy, we need, to, we need to rescue the other birds, right? <laughs> okay. Right, so we need to we need to identify which egg is the cuckoo bird, 
and set it aside so that it doesn't break, you know, its shell and, and kill all the other birds. You know, we, we can we can keep it alive and we can nurture it, but we don't, we shouldn't be, um, uh, we shouldn't be allowing it to be, um, uh, to hide in, in the nest with other birds, mm. right? We should show it for what it is and, you know, let it leave the nest <laughs> and then nurture yeah. it. Yeah, so this is, yeah. When you said it should, we should set it aside, then I thought like, oh, so I guess maybe it does make sense to ban critical race theory. Is that what you're no, saying? No, no, I don't but mean actually, no, I know, I know you don't. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think maybe the way to think about it is, you know, we, we, we certainly want our kids to learn about cuckoo right. birds in school, but we don't want them, you know, we don't want some theory to come in and push out, you know, the American flag and the math textbook and, right. you know, everything and say, you know, everything is about race, even right. math. That's right. It, it should be just one of the eggs in the nest, right? Mm -hmm. And and then when the birds fly, you know, hopefully the other birds are going to, you know, be be more um, productive than the cuckoo bird. Yeah, maybe we need some intellectual yeah, intellectual anti-bullying statutes so that yeah. no no theory can bully all the other ones into submission. They well, have to actually win by win by persuasion as. Uh, Yasha Monk is uh, really making that word an, an yeah. important word. You have to win by persuasion, not intimidation. And and Greg Lukianoff just recently wrote a really good essay about principles for K twelve education yeah. for persuasion. But you know, I, I I'm just sort of perseverating on your on your cuckoo bird analogy because I love it so much. And and the oh, thing that it's, it's, about it's lodged itself in your mind and pushed out all other metaphors. That's a good metaphor. Uh, but uh, but the bullying metaphor is another good one in that um, that you know as we have talked about many times before in in a um, uh, in any e economy there is a, a coin of the realm right mm -hmm. and um, this is about a prestige economy and the 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 coin is is the prestige right so um, and people are getting prestige for the what has become known as virtue signaling right for subscribing mm -hmm. to ideas and hiding their own preferences the preference falsification is severe i i actually think there are while the numbers are bad among um gen z i don't think they're mm -hmm. as bad as we think they are um, oh no! Right, the num that's right. The average, the average of depression is is actually much worse. That's bad. But right, yeah. this is a point I cannot stress enough. That what's changed is that we see these extraordinary extreme things, and then we think that that's the group, and it's not. Right. Um, right. So, and that's okay. And that's, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So if. Uh, okay, so if you're not going to really give us the inspiration from your essay, then I will. Uh, it ends. Uh, it ends like this. But if this is to change, it will take a concerted effort by Jewish leaders, individuals, and organizations to remind us all that we are not characters in other script and others scripts. We are not required to play the parts that others have written. We can and we must reject any identity and any worldview that is inconsistent with our own past and our own social justice story. Jewish values and habits of mind are among the gifts of our heritage. Only when we are true to who we are and strive to be as Jews, can we do our part to repair the world. So I think that's a beautiful ending to your essay. And I think that's a beautiful ending to our 
two-way part of the conversation. So now I think, how are we doing this? So we just, people are putting them in the chat and I, re, I choose the questions. Um, let's see, Ariel, if you wanna put something in the chat to send me guidance. Oh, it's in the Q&A function, I see. Hold on a second. Oh, I didn't even see all this stuff going on in the Q&A section. Yes, the Jew is always on time. Well, <laughs> some of them, okay. I see your panelists, okay. Uh, While you're looking for okay. that, I'll just mention the concept that I know you've talked about and I've talked about, machlochet l'shem shemayim, you know, argument for the sake of heaven. That's something that's really um, fundamental to our Jewish heritage. It's, um, it's something that, uh, you know, if you read the Talmud, it's just a, it's a lot of argumentation. It's, it's, you know, argumentation about the argumentation. And um, it's, it's something that I think we can reclaim. We can reclaim this mm -hmm. idea that argumentation is not um, uh, a, an, it, it's not an admission of immorality to say, well, wait a minute, let me ask a question about that thing or hang on, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, okay. So, so he, here's a question that will allow us to riff off of what you just said. Uh, so this was from uh, an anonymous attendee. Many of my peers are afraid of alienating their children and grandchildren. So they don't wanna isolate the cuckoo bird. Everyone mm -hmm. stays silent in these conversations. How do we overcome this fear? So if you wanna to talk to somebody, Jewish or not Jewish, uh, who has clearly accepted this sort of woke mindset, um, how do you, yeah, how do you do it? So what, for, you give yeah. your thoughts, I'll give mine. Yeah, so I think actually, especially for parents and grandparents who are um, not necessarily the people that teenagers and young adults are going to listen to if they argue, mm -hmm. I yeah. don't recommend arguing. Um, yeah. I, I think that <clears throat> being curious is a, a really good, um, it's not just a strategy, it's a good habit, right? That if if something doesn't make sense to you, ask for it to be explained. Mm -hmm. And the more yeah. that somebody has to explain it, the more they have to understand that for themselves, how that, you know, whether it makes sense. And, and, and don't ask questions in a, uh, um, I, I wanna say in a, a Tucker Carlson way, but I don't know how to <laughs> otherwise yeah. frame that, you know, in a mocking way, in a, in a mm -hmm. facetious way. Um, I guess you could, you could call it a Rachel Maddow way either, Tucker Carlson, Rachel Maddow, either one. Don't ask questions that way. Ask questions really genuinely, authentically want to know the answers. And I, I think that that will go a long way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would just uh, add to that. Uh, this is the, the question that everybody's facing in, in so many contexts. Um, uh, because um, if you're we're really good at having one-on-one -on -one discussions with friends and we're really bad at having discussions in front of an audience. So the, and that because of the, the pressure to virtue signal and when we talk not to our interlocutor, we're talking to the others. Um, so I recommend, uh, it's very dangerous these days to have large uh, all hands meetings or large assemblies where the extremists are gonna take over and shame everyone. Yeah. So avoid that. In fact, that's probably, you know, that's why, I mean, like a format like this is necessary um, because if you just had everybody on Zoom or everybody in a room, if you discuss something difficult, you get people just grandstanding and intimidating. 
Um, so I've spent many years now studying how you can improve civil discourse, civil dialogue. Uh, and you know, the two things, two resources I recommend to everyone is first read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That really changed me and made me much less of a, well, I won't say the, the word, but it made me much less annoying to people that I talked with. <laughs> um, and uh, also, um, Caroline Mell and I created uh, a program called Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, it's made to be used in groups. Um, so if you have any group, or well, you can do, do it yourself, but it teaches you skill. It teaches you why conversations go awry and how do you, how do you, how do you start things off? But yes, by all means, by avoid arguing. Uh, yeah. And as, 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 as you're suggesting, if you, if you actually show curiosity, you ask people to explain, they often can't. Um, and this is what I'm finding is, you know, I, I, there's another question here. Why are, why are the grownups so afraid of the kids? Why are they so afraid to, you know, to stand up or why, why do the leaders on campus always cave in? Um, people are really, really afraid of being called racist. Um, so the only real acts of, I mean, there are a few, but mostly when you hear about a, a, a president of university who stood up to this kind of, of intimidation, it's usually a, a black president, not a white president. Um, White Except people are really, Zimmer. really afraid. Yeah, that's right. He's one of the few, uh, the, one of the few really great examples. Um, but um, what do you think? Say? Oh, what do you think about you know how to get professors and administrators to have more courage? Yeah. So <clears throat> this is something I'm beginning to talk with them about because it's always been the case. I've been talking to them since 2015, and they're almost always you know true liberals, like people on the left who believe in free speech and the mission of the university. Um, but they're afraid. They're afraid of, especially of the students. You know, the, the alumni and the donors are always on, on our side on this, whether they're on the left or the right. You know, older progressives believe in free speech. Um, it's really about young, young, especially, well, there's, we have data, young white women actually are the wokest of all. Right. Um, but professors and, are afraid of them because administrators don't have their back. So exactly. you know, administrators right. need to yeah. have the courage to say no to the students in order for the professors to have the courage to stand up to them in the first place, I think. Exactly, exactly. So it's so because of the lack of viewpoint diversity, basically read the coddling of the American mind. It explains exactly <laughs> all the factors that led universities so that you can, you know, a, a giant university full of intellectuals can be intimidated into submission by one student with Twitter. Um, it's pathetic. Oh, there was an, there's a line in the closing of the American mind. Uh, what is he, he says something like, you know, the students discovered in the 60s that they could, they could turn their professors into dancing bears by just, you know, threatening them with names. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why professors feel they can't stand up. But, you know, my advice to people who ask me, they say, you want to stand up? I say, uh, okay, yes, do it, but do it, you know, do it really, you know, respectfully, start by acknowledging something that you think they're right about, because there's always something that they're right about. There's always something you can acknowledge. There's a way you can draw a larger circle to emphasize something you have in common. Uh, and as you said, start with curiosity. You say, oh, white supremacy? So, so explain, what do you mean by that? And what I found is that people who get into this, this CRT and woke mindset, they can't actually make arguments. What they've learned is to, is to, is to apply labels. So they're very quick to say you're transphobic. Well, that's transphobia, that's white supremacy. That, but okay, you say, okay, so that's a label, that's a label. But tell me, what do you mean, what, you know, so if you ask them to really explain or to make an argument, then they're often quite flummoxed. Um, and, so yeah, and, there are ways to do this. Yeah, and, the, and I think the people who can explain it are actually far more reasonable. You know, the people who can yeah, explain what are, yeah. you mean by those yeah. terms, 
um, the people who can sit even, I mean, I have conversations with, um, you know, philosophy professors, et cetera, who, you know, they do think that there's a lot of value and they think that they do think it is the truth. They think this lens is the truth, but they can explain yeah. it. They can explain it in ways that I will disagree with them about it, but they, we can be friends. It, it, mm -hmm. I think it's not the people who know, who really know the most about critical race theory, who are unable to um, be friends with or civil to people who disagree with them. It's the people, some number of levels down from that who yeah. have some understanding of it, but not enough mm -hmm. to really be able to grasp the yeah. theory. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh, here's a good question. Um, it seems in general, this is from Warren Rich, it seems in general, the reform congregations have focused almost solely on the diversity inclusivity projects to the detriment of focusing on Judaism, the religion. Consequently, the children go to school with little or no attachment to Israel. What do you think? Don't mean to pick on reform only to the extent that I believe they are far and away the majority of Jews in the US. So yeah, I'll just say, I've, I've certainly noticed this, that reform congregations are are really deep into, into social justice. Now, of course, Jews have always been into social justice as you talk about in your essay, but, but reform congregations, certainly here in Manhattan and California and other places I've been, um, they're really like straight academic social justice, like university social justice. Critical and social justice. You know, critical, critical social justice and Black Lives Matter. Um, and, uh, you, know, that I, in, you know, I won't, well, my son's, uh, uh, um, uh, Hebrew school, they, you know, to see them twisting Bible passages to, to show that they're environmental, you know, uh, environmental pleas. Um, so yeah, the reform congregations often seem really ripe for takeover by, by CRT, whereas as far as I can tell, you know, more orthodox congregations aren't touched by this stuff. Is that your perception? What do you think is going on with reform yeah, Jews in particular? I, I actually don't know that Orthodox congregations aren't touched by it, but I think they're less overrun by it. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I think the concern that this um, the, that this person sees or has about what he sees um, is a valid concern, especially with respect to Israel, because you know the thing that you started with the the um, the slide about oh, you know, Amer oh. America is is a you know is welcoming philo-Semitic country. Yes, right. <clears throat> um, that actually, I think, is how um, Reform Jews see it more than the mm. ultra Orthodox. Mm. And and you know, largely the the attacks on Jews are not on Reform Jews. So that's a good point. Reform Jews don't have the same experience of being Jewish yeah. in America that the more visible Jews. You're right. We feel white. We look white. That's we, right. We Whereas feel, Reform, right. Whereas the Orthodox Jews, you can pick out from a hundred yards. Yeah. So, yeah. so especially Jews who who um, who ascribe who subscribe to the idea of whiteness. You know, who subscribe to the racial categories and then identify self-identify as white. They're most likely to be those who um, also subscribe to the critical race theory kind of lens mm. of, of uh, you know, what good and bad is and how white people are oppressors and how Jews are also oppressors. And so this is where people think of them as self-hating Jews. Um, mm. I think that's not a very useful way of, of thinking about it, but I understand where, where that comes from, that idea. Yeah. Um, that's right. It is interesting, right? CRT does 
make Jews into self-hating Jews for you know very different reasons than you know what Woody Allen or Sigmund Freud talked about or wherever right. that term comes from. Right. If you're going to be okay. a good Jew, you have to hate whiteness, and if you that's hate, right. white, yeah. you know, so like the whole thing is the you get right. You get tied up in knots. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. Here's a, here's an easy one for you, Pamela. Is there a balanced list of diverse authors or curriculum anyone has put together that we can offer our K-12 school administrators to replace CRT? We all agree DEI is important, but CRT is not that. Put another way, is there an alternative to Pollyanna? Pollyanna being oh, the, yeah. the consulting company that all the, all the fancy prep schools in New York use. And guess what? If you use Pollyanna, your organization will blow up. Uh, Pamela, <laughs> what's the alternative? What's the well, alternative? There are a number. I mean, the first thing is that there are two um, women I know, Kareth Foster and Chloe Valdery, who both have DEI yeah, they're programs. Great. They're both black women. Um, they have DEI programs that are based on our common humanity and not on dividing and segregating. Um, and I think they're a really good alternative to Pollyanna. Um, but also, um, I, I think too that as far as the kind of curriculum that is sort of being um, infused into schools, um, there are, I think it's just important to always have um, people like John McWhorter and you and Greg um, and, and Chloe has written a number of things. Um, uh, Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry, have, have people in mind, Camille Foster, who have written things and you can point people toward. Also, um, the Foundation Against Racism and Intolerance. Um, is it Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism? FAIR. Yeah, FAIR, right. Um, FAIRforall.org. Uh, yeah. Let's see, if I put this in the chat, does it go to everyone? If so, I'll do it. Um, but yeah, so I'll just put the address in here. Yeah, what? tell them about FAIR. Yeah. Um, so, and this is uh, an organization uh, for parents of parents and teachers of K twelve students, um, and it's uh, in fact there's a there's an event in New York this Saturday afternoon. Uh, if you go to their website, you'll find the information. There's it's going to be on Zoom or online or something for people who aren't in New York. And I think it's actually in a number of cities at the same time on Saturday, it's Loving Day on Saturday. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Virginia versus also, Loving, yeah. And, um, uh, but also I wanna mention Bonnie Snyder of FIRE has a book coming out called Undoctrinate. And I think that's gonna be very useful in this realm also, you know, beyond Jewish, Jewish issues. Um, but specifically thinking about, about Jewish organizations, there's also the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values which is, which I happen to be on the board of. Um, and this is a very new organization trying to help Jewish organizations and congregations, if they want help with this, have um, the ability to have conversations about this because even in the Jewish world, people get shut down. It's not, it, it's not, you know, the Jew, we say it's not the Jewish thing to say, you know, you have to be silent to silence people is not the Jewish thing. Mm -hmm. We even interrupt each other all the time. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, uh, it's happening uh, in too many Jewish organizations that that questions and critiques are unwelcome. Um, let's see, let me see if there's another question here. Where did that go? Q&A. Uh, let's see, what's the most recent question? 
Oh, what's Chloe's name? Chloe Valdery. Maybe someone can put that in the chat. Um, let's see. And her, her program is called The Theory of Enchantment. So we can look it up that way too. Yeah. Right. Oh, here's an interesting question. What about the commonality for Jews with Asian American communities? Given that CRT seems to pander to the lowest common denominator, also denying Asian American achievements and academic prowess. That's an interesting question. Yeah. What, yeah. Do, you, what do you think? Yeah, that's, you know, that's where um, Jews and Asians are called the model minorities. Mm -hmm. um, that because we have succeeded in um, disproportionate uh, numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a there is a kind of commonality, you know, Asian in this way of thinking about um, race, et cetera, Asians are now considered like white adjacent. Um, and, and if you just, if you think about it, it's really just about success. If you succeed, uh, especially disproportionately, then you're automatically categorized as white or something like white, conditionally white, somehow in whiteness, mm -hmm. participating in whiteness in some way, mm -hmm. benefiting from whiteness. So yeah, there is a, there is a commonality there. Yeah, and I see here, uh, it is, it is always good to hear criticism and realize where you went wrong. So two comments here. One is, wow, I think you're insulting the intelligence of reformed Jews, to which I say, I certainly didn't mean to insult anyone's intelligence and certainly not reformed Jews. Uh, I'm a reformed Jew in a reformed Jewish congregation. Um, I wasn't saying that Jews are, are stupid in any way. I was saying that reformed Judaism is morally and socially like a progressive college campus. And so it is fertile ground for CRT to take root, whereas in a Orthodox congregation, you wouldn't have the same, it's, it would not be as fertile soil. And the next comment from uh, Daniel Levin, as a reform rabbi, it's important not to paint reform Jews with a broad brush. That's Most true. of the reform Jews in my community uh, express the challenge of wanting to be allies and helping heal from racism while not subscribing to CRT. Thank you. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, and, it may be, especially in, you know, in New York City, it may be a little bit more, but yes, this is a big country. There are a lot of different reform congregations. And of course, Jews want to do something to fight anti-Black racism and, 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 will, and are able to resist subscribing to CRT. So I, I, my apologies on that point. Yeah, I think also um, there, there is a, an additional challenge in the reform not movements per se, but in, in the reform communities, um, because um, the, it's much easier for uh, the less ritually observant and less visibly Jewish um, to feel so safe um, and so integrated mm -hmm. that, um, that, you know, like what you were saying earlier that that Israel is not the place that we need to protect. We need to protect the less, the more vulnerable here. And um, and it's it, it, it comes from a beautiful place. And I agree, we do need to protect more vulnerable people here. Um, but we can lose sight of um, the the facts on the ground in Israel in in an effort to be um, compassionate and empathetic to the to what's going on with Palestinian issues. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna close our segment here, and then we'll invite in a minute. We'll invite uh, Brett to come back on to to close the whole session for Sapir. Um, 
I'll just, I was, I wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Uh, that's what exposed me to ancient wisdom, and which is almost always right. Not that the ancients were smarter than us, but the things that have come down to us through hundreds of generations of filtering are usually pretty good. And so um, I'm trying to write an essay called Unmoralize Everything. Because mm -hmm. when you make it a moral conflict, you can't see straight, you can't figure it out. You just make things worse by, you know, the more you attack the other side, the stronger they get. So I have a whole set of quotes here. I'll just pick a few almost at random here. Because um, one of the, because the question was, how can we connect with those, uh, with those needs more deeply and effectively in our interactions with the woke? How can we be compassionate rather than antagonistic to the people holding the views, even as we criticize and reject the views themselves? And that's very important to focus on the views, not the people. And yes. Pamela, what did you want to say? I was just want to say before you read your quote, I want to mm -hmm. just okay. um, go back one one step to your book, your other book uh -huh. with Greg, the Happiness like, Hypothesis. Oh, yeah, with okay. Greg, the Coddling of the American Mind, because the mm -hmm. three great untruths. Uh, you know, I, I just want to quickly say the great untruth of of um, fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, the great untruth mm -hmm. of um, emotional reasoning, um, always trust your feelings, and the great untruth of us versus them, um, life is a battle between good people and evil people. That's what, that's the, the problem that's laid out beautifully, and the antithesis of that are the habits of the free mind, and that is, mm -hmm. instead of fragility, courage, instead of emotional reasoning, curiosity, and instead of us versus them thinking compassion. Beautiful, beautiful. So let me just read three quotes uh, from three different traditions. One is, this is from Sen San, a Buddhist monk in the eighth century. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When mm -hmm. love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely far apart. Here's a quote from Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And here, I don't happen to have one from the Hebrew Bible, but here's a quote from Hannah Arendt, uh, forgiveness is the only way to reverse the irreversible flow of history. With that, uh, thank you, Pamela. I'll turn it over back to Greg, uh, to Brett to close us out. Uh, John, Pamela, that was uh, a wonderful discussion. And, um, I'll just close it out by saying that the, uh, the, the subtitle for Sapir is a journal of Jewish conversations. And I just take note that we had over 200 participants um, at dinner time, or 200 uh, uh, viewers at dinner time uh, participating and engaging what I thought was just an absolutely remarkable, not to mention really important conversation. So I want to thank the people who listened in, um, uh, those who asked questions, uh, uh, those who didn't. It's incredibly important. I want to take note of the fact that um, real conversations have to take place, uh, not just between people, but also across differences. And that's what we are trying to do um, with uh, Sapir, uh, to take note of real differences within the Jewish community. Uh, without demonizing anyone um, and without trying to drive anyone out of uh, the conversation. But finally, I want to thank you, John, for the wonderful interview and Pamela for writing just an extraordinary and an extraordinarily uh, important essay for Sapir. Again, a little promo before everyone leaves. This is sapirjournal.org. Uh, read the essay, uh, read all of the essays. They're, they're superb, inspiring, and most importantly, uh, thought-provoking. So thanks again for your time 
and we look forward to doing more of these in the future. Good night. Good night.